and I still wrestle with those flaws all the time when everybody else just looks so perfect and and like they have their shit together, right? They just look like they've got it all figured out. And here I am still at my age feeling like I have to figure it out, but I don't have to figure anything out. All I have to do is just be who I am. And I have to remind myself of that all the time. That's my guest on today's episode of the Mic Drop Moment. She's known around the world as the Speech Diva. She's been a longtime voice and speech faculty member at the University of Arts in Philadelphia, as well as Drexel University. She's the head of voice training for heroic public speaking and has been a performance coach and voice coach for TEDx Cambridge. And Darcy Webb is one of my favorite people in the world. You can check her out at speechdiva.com. You can also hop onto YouTube and look up her hilarious and helpful videos under the Speech Diva name called Two Minute Tuesday Tune-Ups with Darcy Webb. Uh, Really helpful for getting your voice all clear. And on today's episode, we talk about your voice, but we also talk about art, creation, figuring out that you're good enough, and what it takes to stand in front of an audience and speak your truth. This is going to be a good one. So you have a story to tell, and you wonder how to own the stage and give that killer speech that will captivate the masses. You don't just want to speak to them. You want to transform your audience. Welcome to the Mic Drop Moment. Bold conversations about public speaking, storytelling, and business that give you real-world valuable takeaways so you can craft a speech, a story, a business, and a life that the world can't stop talking about. It's time to find your Mic Drop Moment. Here is your host, Mike Ganino. Darcy Webb. So you talk about this moment where you really kind of started your journey in a way of learning about voice and the power of voice. You talk about this play that you were in and you were on stage and afterwards the director said the thing you always want to hear, which is you were wonderful. And then he added, if only I could have heard you. (laughs) What was going on? Oh, uh, this was um, 1978. I was 26 years old and uh, the show was a lyrical opera made by two. The music was original um, by a a composer from Pittsburgh, and the lyrics were by Gertrude Stein. It It was her poetry. And the play, or the musical, is about Gertrude Stein's and Alice B. Toklas's marriage, their 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 partnership, their love affair. And I played Gertrude Stein. And there were so many people in the audience I wanted to impress. Oh, and I knew I was doing a really good job. I just knew it. And I and I knew I sounded good. My voice sounded good. I was really, I was so excited about this project. And I was really counting on impressing these people. But apparently I couldn't be heard. He said, you were wonderful if only I could have heard you. And boy, did that just land hard. And it set me on my journey. So was it only a a one-time show or was this like a full run and you had to figure out how to get back on stage and make this all work to redeem yourself? Well, I had to do, I had, we ran that show. And so I had to, 
I had to keep doing it, but I didn't know what to do to make it better. I didn't know how to, I, I didn't know how to be louder. I didn't know how to be um, um, more expressive than I already was. I didn't know how to be energetic. I didn't know. I was 26 years old and I needed more experience and I needed more training. And here's the other thing, Mike, that I think people don't pay attention to. They just think, um, oh, I, I, uh, I have to get better or I have to learn how to articulate. I have to learn how to speak better. And this goes for public speakers. This goes for actors. It, but very seldom do we really pay attention to our instrument and our body is our instrument and everybody's instrument is different and we have to learn to play it. And one of the things that I learned about myself over the years, I have learned about myself is my head is little and my mouth is small and I have I had to learn how to use that small resonator to its maximum effect. I didn't I was just doing what everybody else was doing, but I couldn't do that. I had to learn how to play this body. In last week's episode, episode number five of the show, I was talking about how we don't really need to find our voice. We need to develop our voice. And I was talking about like perspective and and having a clear idea of what you want to say. But it also occurs to me that sometimes the actual physical sound and knowing how to sound the way we want is an issue. I talked about that with when I was first learning to record music and how you don't sound the way you sound because of all the bones in your head. And I've seen you over the years work with people And sometimes there's actually not just understanding how our voice works and how breath works, but sometimes there's a lot of stuff deeper that make us sound the way we do. Maybe we're holding something back. Maybe we're dealing with that. Do you think in that moment with the play and them not being able to hear you, was there something deeper happening there or uh, was it just you hadn't learned yet how to use those pipes? Oh, I'm sure there was something much deeper. You know, people who work with the voice will say, the mechanics are 10%. The rest is 90% psychological. So I had to learn how not to be afraid. I had to learn how to reach out energetically, fearlessly to that audience and know that they, that I loved them and that they could accept my love or They could just not, and that would be okay too. And once I figured that out, it was many years later when I figured out, this was when I was working on my own show, my one-woman show. Actually, it was a two-woman show. It was me and my music director. And one day I said, you know what? I said to her, I'm good enough. I'm just, this is it. This is as good as it gets and I am good enough. But I have enough love for that audience. And if they don't love me back, that's okay. And I think that was a real turning point for me. That was when I learned how, that was, that was when I learned that it was okay to truly express myself. And I'm still working on that. Shoot, I'm still working on that. I'm working on that right now as we are talking. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such an interesting thing because I think so often people 
whether they're they're public speakers or whether they're actors. I mean, I I I live in LA, so I'm around actors and TV people, and and you mm. teach actors and have been and are an actress, and you've done all these things. And I think what's so interesting is we often look at people who show up in front of other people and we think like, oh, that must have taken so much courage to do. But there's also this ability to kind of hide in it if you aren't willing to do the work that you just said, which is to figure out who am I actually showing up in this? There's a way that you can constantly never have to show up as yourself, isn't there? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And where we can hide behind that persona that we've worked so hard to cultivate. It's really hard to come out from behind that persona, come out from behind that mask and those clothes and, and be the real you. I, you know, I'm, I'm so flawed. I'm, and I still wrestle with those flaws all the time when everybody else just looks so perfect and, and like they have their shit together, right? They just look like they've got it all figured out. And here I am still at my age feeling like I have to figure it out, but I don't have to figure anything out. All I have to do is just be who I am. And I have to remind myself of that all the time. And sometimes that's crazy. And sometimes it's um, serious. And sometimes it's aggressive or angry. I I just have to uh, be okay with that. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say, I, you know, I, and I grew up not like that. I was not raised that way. I was, I grew up, I, my mother taught me how to be such a good girl. I learned how to dress. I learned which fork to pick up. I learned which, which knife to use. I learned how to put them down when I was finished. I learned not to take the last cookie off the plate because that was impolite. Yes, please. No, thank you. Very nice to meet you. And do not call attention to yourself. <laughs> it was so fucking hard. <laughs> it, it, so when was the point, and may, maybe we're all still doing it, I think, in some way, but when was the point that you said, I don't have to do that anymore? Oh, I don't remember. I, don't, I, I, I do remember going to my, my first few days in theater school, at theater school, and thinking, oh, this is the world where I want to be, where there are so many different kinds of people and so many um, things are happening and people are being themselves and people are free to be themselves and people are, there are black people and Asian people and, you know, uh, gay people and lesbians and gorgeous men and beautiful women. And I, I just felt like it was like being in a candy store because I was not raised that I was not raised in a, and, and then I started swearing and it was, (laughs) and that was really so freeing. And I don't think I've ever stopped swearing. It's just, (laughs) I love to swear. I love cuss words. Yeah. Well, what's so interesting is when you say them, they also have this, this, uh, I don't know, this resonance and this crispness to them that they are intentional. Yes. Well, I think if you're going to swear, if you're going to say things like fucking shit and, you know, I've I've had to say some pretty bad ones um, on screen and on stage. um, I think you just better say them like you mean it. 
or else they what what's the point so i do adore them i have used i've used the c word both on screen and on stage and it is just liberating (laughs) isn't it funny because do you think that part of the reason that it's interesting because I was I was looking at someone wrote today on Facebook and they wrote something of, of uh, you know using a, a curse word in a speech, but then with their corporate audiences they don't. And it, isn't it strange how we gather a bunch of group of adults and then we think they're scared of hearing someone say, yeah. "shit," yeah, or that someone's going to um, judge them poorly for, it. and someone might. I don't know. Somebody might. Yeah. Somebody might say that that's just unprofessional and inappropriate and I'm not going to hire that person. I don't know. I just, I'm so tired of the bullshit. I'm tired of this bullshit. I love it. I love it. This is, somebody asked me the other day, they said, is this show going to be, is this show going to have explicit warning or not? And I was like, I don't think so. And then in my first three guests, I was like, no, I think so. We're we're going to say it. Turn up the volume. Use your story. Wake up the world. This is the Mic Drop Moment. One of the things I've learned over the years of working with various voice teachers through theater and on my own on stage and certainly working with you, Darcy, is that everyone has a specialty. There's people that are, you know, dealing with pathology when something goes wrong and people that deal with accents. What is your specialty and how did you kind of discover that in the world of voice and speech? Yeah, that's a good question. Because, you know, when I'm teaching my university students, I don't really get to the Darcy thing they get until much later because I'm teaching them how to articulate and how to pronounce words um, correctly using the international phonetic alphabet. But then the, the good stuff comes when I get to take that work and apply it to text and show them how just you, just you take the cork out of your throat and you let the truth up. You let the truth up and out. Sometimes when I'm working with people, just to encourage them to open their mouths will produce tears, will make them cry. Because they've been tamping down that truth, what they really want to say all those years. Sometimes people will laugh hysterically. I think that's such a gas. But um, I think that's what it is. That's what I'm really interested in, is uncorking the truth. And there are they're just all... Other, um, there are myriad ways to do that. And so what do you think it is? What is the cork? What's the reason that the truth is staying bottled down so much and that it's hard sometimes to say the thing we really need to say? What is that? What's the cork all about? Fear, 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 and fear. It's just fear. What? Wait, that's right? I'm so afraid to say so many things, Mike. You know that. You know that about me. I'm just, I'm terrified to say the truth. Do you think it's possible for someone to get in front of people, whether it's at a networking event and there's some, this is the funny thing that I think I've watched so many people at, you know, small retreats or conferences where they get up and it's their turn to just introduce themselves just to say, Hey, I'm Mike Ganino and I run a podcast called the Mike drop moment. And I work with, you know, experts and entrepreneurs to help them tell their story. I watch people at these events, people who are running 
you know, seven and eight figure businesses get up and turn into a pile of mush just trying to say what they do. What is that fear? Yeah, I think it is fear. And it's about owning really, I think it's about owning who they are. Mm. And and maybe it has a little bit of the imposter syndrome involved in it. And I don't really know because I'm not that kind of a person. I'm not a big person. But I can tell you this. I went to a workshop one year up at the Omega Institute that was being run by Tanya Pinkins. Do you know who Tanya Pinkins is? She's no. the, She's a Broadway actress. She was the star of um, Caroline or Change. And she does a, she'll do a lot of things on TV. Um, and she's, oh, she's a woman who's been through, you know, the wars and abusive husbands and a horrible childhood and welfare and rags to riches to rags to riches again. She's been through it all. So there were a dozen people in this workshop and people from all walks of life. There were, there was one girl who couldn't do anything but just lie on the floor. She was completely depressed. That was all she did. She, she lay on the floor all weekend and we left her there. And there were only 12 people in this workshop. And then there was, you know, there was somebody else who was very successful. And then there was another rich person who used to be an actress. And then there was a guy who had been really injured in a, an airplane accident. So he was quite crippled up. He was crippled, uh, quite crippled. He was, um, you know, kind of twisted and he couldn't speak very well, but he was in for this workshop. The workshop was titled drop, get over it, drop the drama and claim the life you deserve. I thought, well, shit, I need to go to this (laughs) workshop. So one of the first exercises we had to do was we had to stand up in front of these 12 people after we told them what our dream was for our future, and then they applauded. But they didn't just applaud, they applauded for an entire minute while she timed it. And to have to stand there in front of a dozen people applauding you and whistling for a minute is really very hard because we don't want to accept that We don't think we deserve that. And it was a really good exercise to do. The other thing she used to say was, if anyone pays you a compliment, instead of deflecting it, instead of saying, oh, no, no, that's not really me, or oh, no, no, you look better in this dress, or oh, God, really? I just feel so fat in this. You reply, it's true. Thank you. Try that. That is really hard. Wow. It's interesting. It makes me think of this moment when the speakers were uh, at TEDx Cambridge. And at the end of the event, they're in the Boston Opera House, 2,600 people. They're on that red dot. And as soon as they finish, their instinct is to dart away. Yes, and there's it's it's such an interesting thing. We just had a we just had one of the TEDx Cambridge salons and that was the thing that they wanted to do. It was the, they said their last word and it was peace out and they wanted to run away. And it's, it's so hard to just stand there. And isn't that interesting because we want to be loved. We're doing this because we want the love and we want to be told we're okay. But as soon as we get it, we think what that we're not worthy. I'm not, I don't deserve this. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and when we can just finally accept it and let that in, I think it makes, I don't know, I, just, I think that that makes us happier and more contented. Just a little bit more. It's an interesting thing we were talking about with the link between somebody not opening their mouth, just just having oh. a little small voice and not opening their mouth. And also what we were saying now around accepting the applause. And do you think there's a, a tie between not even wanting to fully say what you're going to say or fully be able to, because then you have to own good or bad what happens, whether oh. they love you or don't. Yes. Yeah. And, and not care. Well, see, this is the tick. This is the trick, right? And this is what the, the, the Buddha said. It doesn't matter whether they like you or I don't know. I don't know exactly how he said it, but I know that this is what they practice in Buddhism. It doesn't matter if it's good and it doesn't matter if it's bad. It just is. Hmm. Right. And this is something that when I'm meditating, I, I'm, I try and bring my mindfulness to that when I'm feeling good is not really what I want to be striving for. And, and when I'm feeling bad, I don't want to be striving not to feel bad. I just want to observe it and then keep moving forward. When, because, because then we just keep looking for it. We keep looking for the good. So if we can just, if it can just not matter either way. You know, I have actor friends who don't read reviews. Mm. And if you say to them, but it's a really good review, you should look at it. They say, I don't really care. I care mm. about the work. I care that I did my job. And if we can do that yeah, every day, you know, if we could just move through our lives every day, not worrying about, whether we are loved or whether we're not loved, but whether we're giving love, wouldn't that be great? That's really hard. In the moments where you are thinking of that and thinking of it's hard, what is the debate that's going on in your head? Well, but I like it. <laughs> but, but that feels good, right? That piece of chocolate was lovely, but maybe I'll just eat some more. <laughs> Right? We want more. We want more of that good stuff. We want more applause. You know, when my when my clients say to me, you were the best thing that ever happened to me, I think I got to have another client that says that to me and then I have to <laughs> write about it. It doesn't really matter. Just yeah. helping people is what, what should matter. Giving the gift of whatever your gift is. That's what matters. And don't you do that? I think you do that. That's why people love you. You know, I try to, I try to just show up. And I, you know, it's funny is even doing this show. Obviously, anyone listening to this show and this episode will realize by the episode number, this is pretty close to the beginning of doing this show. And I, I got really confident because I, I watched some videos on, on how to do a podcast, and and I bought a course, and I thought, ah. Oh, I can't believe I haven't been doing a podcast for five years. This is so easy. <laughs> and then I started setting it all up and I was like, I I don't I don't know how to I don't know how to do that and I don't know how to do that and I don't know how to do that. And it's um and who knows, somebody listening right now might be saying, Well, I don't know that this is a gift 
that you're giving us, Mike. Who knows? We'll, we'll see. They'll be the judge of that and, and we'll see what happens. But what I realized is that very quickly I was able to assemble this great lineup of people to talk to, people like you, Darcy, and and uh, Jackie, who's been on the show, and Laura, who's been on the show, and Melissa, who's been on the show, and, and a bunch of the guests coming up. And I thought, well, what a what a shitty thing if nobody ever gets to hear from these people. Because there's probably mm-hmm. someone out there who's feeling that their truth is corked up. And maybe hearing you today say, uncork your truth, uh, inspires them to do something different. And so I thought about how much I didn't want to be bad at something. I text you this, actually, Dars. I text you and I said, this is really hard. Hard. And I don't, I am used to things. This, I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but I'm used to things being very easy for me. And I said, this is hard. And you said, uh, you said something. You probably said, shut up and move on. Why? No, you were, you were kind. You said, why is it so hard? What is hard about it? I did because I was really surprised because, because even when I, I just think of you as uh, I'm accepting a challenge and then saying, I'm going to figure it out. I can figure this out. That, I think, is inspiring. That's, I just, th- I think that is so commendable and it's a great example because there are so many people who run up against a wall like you have run up against trying to figure this out and will quit. Mm. And you don't. And that's great. And I thank you for that because I've thought about you a lot uh, over the past four years. I just thought, I just think you're quite a marvel. It's true. Thank you. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> I'm practicing what you taught me. So, so I want to ask you, I want to ask you this because, because, you know, I think there's probably people listening who feel like they have some gift or they have something to share and they're feeling corked up and everything. So for you, did you at like a young age say, I'm going to become a voice teacher? Uh, did you know at a young age you want to be an actress? Yes. You did know. Actually, at a young age, I knew I really wanted to be a singer. Oh my God. I'm telling you, if I had had more self-awareness when I was younger, that's probably what I would still be doing now. Um, but I knew that I wanted to perform. When I was a little girl, I used to stand in front of the TV and sing with the, you know, the people on the variety shows. Um, I just, I loved it. And my mother, when I was a little kid, put me into dance classes because she said I would not, I was so shy, I wouldn't go in to the corner store to buy a loaf of bread on my own. So she started sending me to dance classes. Um, it, I just didn't know any different. I didn't know anything else because really I'd been doing that stuff from the time I was a little kid. But my husband came home, Charlie, you know Charlie. He came home from the university one day, 20 years ago, and he said, Don't miss a single mic drop. Subscribe to the mic drop moment. And he said, so uh, Gene's looking for a voice and speech teacher to teach a section. And I told him that you probably could do it. Are you interested? And I was so frustrated at that point with my career. And I just thought, just say yes. You don't know if you can do it. You, You don't. You don't know what you're getting yourself into, but just say yes. And I did. And I taught one section 
And my teaching assessments from the students were so high that the chairman brought me back the next year to teach four sections. And I have been at the University of the Arts ever since. And I love teaching. And I have private clients and I coach public speakers because I'm a good teacher. When I was younger and I was trying to figure out what else I could do besides acting, I, do you know the book, What Color Is Your Parachute? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I took, I read it and I took the test. I was, I don't know, I was 25. And it came up, teacher, resoundingly teacher. And I thought, I'm not doing that. A couple of years later, I read the book again, took the test again. Teacher! I thought, this is bullshit. I am not teaching. I am an actress. And I ended up teaching, and it was what I should have been doing. Well, that and, you know, singing at a jazz bar. (laughs) (laughs) You said earlier, you said that if you had had the self-awareness, you would have have stayed with singing. What, What do you mean by that? Well, I don't... I remember as a little girl saying to my mother, I want, I, I sang a lot as, in private when I was a kid, you know, five, six, seven. And I, when I was a little girl, I said to my mother, I want to take piano lessons. And she said, no. And I said, can't we just get an old piano? And she said, no, your father doesn't want to hear the noise. Mm. And he was pretty much a tyrant. So I, I, typically didn't push up against my father too much. And I, so I bought that. Um, but I was allowed to go to dance class. You know, I was allowed to go away and take ballet and modern jazz. And, you know, they stuck me in something called musical comedy, just kind of keep me occupied. Um, but if I think that if I had been allowed to do that, as a younger person and, and understand music and study music theory and study composition. I, I honestly think I would have done that because I have been singing for much of my life. It's a good feeling. It's that is when I'm completely uncorked is when I'm singing. When my truth, when I'm, when my cork is up is when I'm singing. Why? I don't know. That's just what happens. I sing my truth. Mm. Do you find that you're drawn to any certain types of songs? Like, because, because that's when this very deep Darcy truth comes out. Do you find that there are certain themes in what you love to perform? Yeah. Um, I like comedy. I like comic songs. I love songs with words. Um, jazz is really jazz and old jazz standards. I mean, the songs that they were writing in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, they could express broken hearts and healed hearts better than anybody can now. So that music has always spoken to me, and I've always chosen to sing those songs. You were talking about teaching, and you were talking about the parachute coming back again and again, and the parachute was was uh, was wanting to stick you in the little basket and take you somewhere. Uh-huh. And what do you think that is? What do you think is the the core there, the through line for you in teaching that it that it stayed so 
consistent? I don't, I, I don't know. In fact, when I took that test, I couldn't figure out what it was about me. I really don't know. You know, it asks funny questions. Uh, I didn't, I couldn't even, it wasn't, it was like, you know how you take some of those tests on Facebook and you can really avoid getting the result. You can, you can actually sort of get the result you want just by answering the question different. I couldn't do that. I couldn't figure out why it kept coming up as teacher. But I think that, um, I don't know, I just have, when I'm in the classroom or when I'm in the studio with somebody, I connect with them. I connect with, it is my deep wish to connect with their heart and to help them and to get them to the place where they want to be. Because I always wanted, I had one teacher that did that for me. One. Who was that? His name was Jim Prescott, and he was my junior acting teacher. And he, and he, and I, he directed me in two plays um, after college when, when, you know, I was working in the profession. And uh, he was a champion for me. And I remember when I started teaching at UArts, I said to myself, and I said to him, and he had already passed away, but I said, I'm, I want to be like you. I want to do for my students what you did for me. He was just kind and supportive. And, you know, uh, my, um, one of my kids went to a Montessori school, and I became very close to that school. I worked for that school because I, I, uh, that's how I put my son through Montessori school. I took a job there for five years so he could stay there. And I learned a lot about the Montessori method. I didn't teach. I was an administrator there, but I learned a lot about Maria Montessori and the Montessori method. And the head of that school used to say, if you, if you love a child, if you truly love your student, it will be easier to teach them and they, it will be easier for them to learn from you. So I re- that's a place where I put myself before I walk into the classroom or into the studio is that I love that person unconditionally. What was it that even if uh, maybe at the time you didn't know, but now looking back, you say, this is what I was looking for. And that's what he helped me find. Oh, I think it was um, artistry, how to how to how to make my art he was really good at explaining that he was really good at teaching acting and i wanted a good acting teacher and i had not had good acting teachers up until that point you know you know the classical the classic acting teacher who has to completely beat you down so that they can bring you back up and torment you and make you writhe on the floor with angst and (laughs) I had that (laughs) I had that and for some people that's very effective and for others it's not and it was not for me but Jim had another way of approaching the craft of acting and it was very clear for me and he he just he taught me how to make art Mm. He answered a lot of questions. I had a student once who, I don't know, this might be irrelevant. You might want to take this out, but 
I had a, I had a, a student who um, I was sitting in a, you know, they each got one-on-one evaluations uh, twice a year. And I was sitting with, I was his voice and speech teacher. I was sitting with his acting teacher and I think a dance teacher. And he was getting evaluated by all three of us. And I had, you know, good things to say. He was a good student. He was a very good student. He is now a professional actor around the city, just working all the time. His acting professor said to him, Rob, you stink. Rob, you got to put the drill to the fucking nerve, Rob. And I thought, that is so cruel. Why? How does being cruel to somebody make you a better human being? I don't get that. So I just won't be that kind of a teacher. It's time to be unapologetically you. Find your mic drop moment. You were talking about loving your audience, loving your students, and that to be a great teacher or to be a great performance coach when you're working with you know, a, a business professional or a public speaker, that it's going into the room and, and just feeling nothing but love for them. Do you think that that's part of what's missing from so many people who do get out in front of people, whether they're they're hosting a podcast, being a guest on a podcast, or getting on stage somewhere, do you think that it's they're just not focusing on loving that audience enough? Yes, and I also think they're not focusing on loving themselves. We're all one, right? We're all one. I'm, I feel like I'm one with the when I'm doing well in front of an audience. I feel like I'm one with the audience. I love me. I love them. It's all okay. We're going to make mistakes together. We're going through this together. And yes, I think that so often the reason why we can't connect with people on stage, whether that's an actor in a play, a singer, a public speaker, it's because they're more worried about themselves than they are about giving a gift to the audience. I say this to my students all the time. You are making art. Making art is like making love. It's a gift. It's not something you take. It's something you give. It's interesting, too. I watched you work with with a speaker, uh, Rafael Ocampo for TEDx Cambridge in the 2019 show at the Boston Opera House. He's a medical doctor and a poet. And he was the closing speaker and he was reading, he was going back and forth between telling his information about using art and poetry as a as a healing mechanism and then actually reading poetry he had written. And I remember him struggling with that emotional connection in the same way that I think some of the the students probably that you see, and, and honestly, a lot of the speakers I would imagine that you work with are struggling with actually connecting emotionally to what they're saying. If someone's out there and they're listening and they're having that, they know that there's a, a part of a story, a part of a moment, they're on a podcast, they're on a stage, and they want to share that. What's your advice for them to be able to tap into that place where they can do that? Because I watched Raphael go from being relatively monotone in his delivery to actually creating a moment where 
I cried. I was backstage. I was the MC. I cried. And I think he was at a, he was on the verge of that himself. How do we find that? I think we, um, we take a moment. We, I think we take a moment and we breathe and we just sit for a moment, just like you are doing right now. You're being quiet. You're taking pauses. I'm being quiet. I'm taking pauses. And we sit with ourselves for a moment and we feel what it is that's going on. And we open our mouths and just see what happens. I guess. I mean, I, I think it takes a lot of practice and a lot of mindfulness to, to be truthful, to be, to, be, to be authentic and be okay about it. It takes practice. It takes practice. And I am so envious of those people who can do it. I am. I don't know. <laughs> well, you, I, I, don't I know. watched you, and I have watched you over the years guide people so beautifully through that. And I think that the the what color is your parachute was right in that whether whether you're teaching in a in a university <laughs> setting or you're one on one with someone, uh, you are a teacher. And I and I think that part of what you help teach people and what I've witnessed is teaching them that it's okay to feel something. It is okay to feel something. We're just, we're not allowed. We're just not allowed to, to feel those things. You know, I can remember when I was in my mid-20s and I, I had uh, hooked up with my family um, at a birthday party. Oh, it was my birthday party, actually. It was, they were having a birthday party for me at the beach and I hadn't seen them for like a year. And one of my sisters gave me a gift and I opened the gift and it was an apron. I'm from Pittsburgh. I hadn't been to Pittsburgh in years. On the apron was printed a recipe for a beautiful city. You take three rivers, you combine it with two inclines, you have the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Pittsburgh Pirates. All the wonderful things about Pittsburgh were listed on this recipe for a beautiful city and I pulled it up and I started to cry and I said this means so much to me you know what the response was and I, st I can't even believe it I still can't believe it to this day the response was oh Darcy stop being so stupid oh look at her she's crying oh stop it people are uncomfortable with feeling happened the other day. I was standing with a woman and we were talking about something that was meaningful and some feeling flitted across my face. I don't even remember the moment. I don't remember what we were talking about. And I she saw the tears come to my eyes and she took my arm and she said, I'm so sorry. What is it? What did I trigger? And I said, you triggered a genuine emotion and now I'm going to cry. 
And crying is okay. I'm feeling something. I am a human. I am in the world, and we feel. It's not just a trigger. It's a feeling, and that's okay. I think I speak for all of us when I say that Darcy Webb is way more than just okay. She's one of my favorite people, and if you want to learn more about her and make her one of your favorite people, head on over to speechdiva.com for all things Darcy Webb. This episode has ended, but your journey doesn't have to. Head on over to www.mikeganino.com. Access all the resources and links that Mike and his guests shared today. And keep on crafting your own story. That's www.mikeganino.com. Your audience is waiting. Isn't it time to find your hashtag mic drop moment? 